Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. I mentioned last week that we'll be open for submissions in the very near future. I also mentioned that we're trying something new this time around. A special advanced opening specifically for tales of devilish dwellings. One thing I realized, though, that I didn't mention last week is that while we intend to open exclusively for Haunted House Tales August 1st, we'll be opening to wider submissions from all horror subgenres, topics, and tropes a little while after that. So while we hope to get an influx of derelict dwellings and haunted homes, you'll have your chance to inundate us with the full gruesome gamut soon enough too. If you'd like to get a head start, our guidelines are pretty simple. Up to 10,000 words, 
nothing excessively gratuitous, intolerant, or pervy, and as blood-churningly, gut-spillingly terrifying as possible. Of course, if you'd like more detail than that, TalesToTerrify.com slash submissions has all of the other pertinent information you might need to know. Check it out. This week I'd like to extend a thank you to reviewer Dude with a Headache, who left some killer kind words on Apple Podcasts for us. It means the world to us to hear that you enjoy what we do, Children of the Night, and it helps out the show a tremendous amount as well. A simple rating or review can help put us on the radar for more wayward souls and help guide them into our terrible embrace. Of course, if you'd like another way to support the show, you can do that by throwing some coins our way, too. And while we'll gladly accept cursed pirate treasure or ancient demonic idols, Patreon and PayPal are the most common ways to support. I talk a lot about Patreon, but did you know that you can also support us via PayPal through the link on our homepage? PayPal allows you to donate any amount you want, either a single one-time donation or monthly, and 100% of the funds go directly to supporting this show to pay our authors and writers. No middleman, no extra fees, no fuss. It's a phenomenal way to support what we do, and for those who support us on PayPal, this is a special shout-out to you. Thank you so much, and may your dreams be fraught with terrors from the dark. Speaking of terrors from the dark, let's see what grotesqueries we can conjure this week, shall we? We have one tale this evening which comes to us from Lee Clark Zump. Lee has been writing and publishing horror, dark fantasy, and speculative fiction since the late 1990s. His short stories and poetry have appeared in a variety of publications, such as Weird Tales, Space and Time, and Dark Wisdom, and in anthologies such as The Children of Glaaki, Best New Zombie Tales Volume 3, through a Mythos Darkly, Heroes of Red Hook, and World War Cthulhu. His work has earned several honorable mentions in the year's best fantasy and horror collections. As entertainment editor for Tampa Bay newspapers, Lee has penned hundreds of film, theater, and book reviews, and has interviewed novelists as well as music industry icons such as Patty Maloney of The Chieftains, and Alan Parsons. His work for TBN has been recognized repeatedly by the Florida Press Association, including a first-place award for criticism in the 2013 Better Weekly Newspaper Contest. Lee lives on the west coast of Florida with his wife and daughter. Visit leeclarkzump.com to learn more about him. Children of the Night, join me for Lee Clark Zump's An Unsolicited Lucidity, first published in Weird Book, Issue 32, 2016. 
Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. The following journal was found amidst the possessions of the late David Arthur Brown, noted nature photographer. Though undated, records obtained from William Whitley College listed D. Brown as team archivist and publicist in connection with the ill-fated 1961 expedition. Day 1. Marooned The world takes sinister pleasure at reminding people like me that the meticulous designs of meager men may be easily swept away by the folly of destiny. What should have been a standard assignment for a veteran writer and photojournalist has disintegrated into chaos. What should have been a routine voyage to the Malagasy Republic has deteriorated into crisis. Now, instead of documenting the biodiversity of endemic lemurs, I find myself penning the first few lines of a journal that will hopefully be restricted to a few pages in length. All five passengers and four crewmen aboard the cabin cruiser Aurora survived the tempest that beached our 1925 Elko flat-top motor yacht on the shore of this remote island. Having endured two days of fierce squalls, incessant gales, and rogue waves, I am not surprised the captain hesitates when asked exactly where we might be and how long we might have to wait for rescuers to locate us. In this part of the world, I wonder if authorities even bother to search for ships lost at sea. Little more than a week ago, I was enjoying a cup of locally brewed coffee in the lobby of a hotel on Kailandini Road in Mombasa. The establishment caters to Westerners vacationing in Kenya, eager to walk the sandy beaches along the azure waters of the Indian Ocean. On the streets of the old harbor quarter, 
Native Africans mingle with bearded Arab seamen, dressed in turbans. European tourists barter with market square vendors trying to lose themselves in post-colonial culture. And chatty American businessmen scramble to profit from a fledgling country's doubt and indecision, much like their carpetbagger ancestors did almost a century ago during the Reconstruction era. There were dows set sail with cargoes of coconuts and ivory. I met with members of an expedition from William Whitley College, a small liberal arts school located in the highland town of Tahlequah, North Carolina. Professor Alfred P. Weeding, the team leader and chair of the school's biology department, monopolized the conversation that afternoon, detailing his desire to inventory this Strepsirahini cloud and lauding the Malagasy Republic as the eighth continent because of its long ecological isolation and the distinctiveness of its fauna. Should fortune smile on us, I distinctly remember the professor saying, we may even find certain species thought to be extinct. The college commissioned me to document the expedition. More than just taking notes and snapping pictures in the jungle, they have entrusted me to authenticate their research in a professional manner and to make public their findings at the conclusion of the effort. While I do not share Weeding's enthusiasm over the subject matter, I find the salary William Whitley offered quite pleasing. As a freelancer, I contribute both copy and photographs to several scientific and travel-related periodicals, including Modern Biologist, National Geographic, Safari Journal, Science Digest, and Bizarre Destinations. In those magazines, I generally work as part of an entourage, and I rarely see a byline or a photo credit. The appeal of being the sole writer and photographer enticed me almost as much as the promise of substantial income. Of course, it will be difficult spending that paycheck, stuck here on this island. Ironically, Weeding insisted on an approach by sea, so that he could investigate islands in Mozambique Channel for additional signs of biodiversity. Scheduled stops on our journey to the seaport of Majunga on Bontaka Bay included Anjoan, Mayat, and Nozibi. Unfortunately, the captain believes we were driven eastward on monsoon winds, deeper into the Indian Ocean and far from our intended course. We're among the Seychelles, the Kenyan Seafar told me this morning as we considered options for rationing provisions. His English phrasing comes slowly and deliberately, so I'm not certain if the hesitation I detected in his voice stemmed from struggling with the language or some unspoken doubt. A few moments later, he conferred with his first mate about the condition of the radio, speaking then in his native Swahili. Though I did not understand what he said, I recognized both exasperation and frustration in his expression. Tomorrow, the captain and his crew will explore the waters offshore, hoping to find the Indian Ocean brimming with fish. Weeding has asked me to join him and his colleagues as they attempt to circumnavigate the island. The captain warned us both to avoid the forested interior. I see wisdom in his caution, but I have already noticed the professor staring past the palm trees that skirt the beach into the lush, tropical flora that no doubt accommodates a thriving population of exotic animals, and at the dark gray mountains that rise from the jungle floor and stretches skyward. Day 2. Natural Exclusion The captain admitted this morning that the radio was beyond repair. What he refrained from mentioning until my persistent questioning embarrassed him sufficiently is that the radio never worked in the first place. 
The damage had been done on a previous voyage. The first mate failed to have it rebuilt or replaced on their most recent stay in the port. My own suspicions justified, I immediately regretted pressing the issue when I realized the other crewmen had also been kept in the dark. Upon discovering the oversight, they quickly turned on their former friend with murderous eyes. Only the captain's stern commands delivered in sharp-spoken Swahili pacified them, at least for the time being. With tempers at least temporarily moderated, I set out with Weeding and his five colleagues to explore the perimeter of the island. In front of us, the gentle surf rolled ashore, a beguilingly tranquil vision considering the stormy waves that dashed our 65-foot vessel against a coral ledge before depositing it on the coast. Behind us, the white wood hull of the Aurora gleamed in the mid-morning sun while the Kenyan crew gathered nets and gaffs to facilitate their hunt for a meal. The moment we were out of earshot, Weeding made his concerns about the captain known. "'I've nothing against the man personally,' he said, prefacing the acquisition that would follow. The professor questioned his abilities the moment he came on board. He noticed navigational charts hopelessly out of date, shoddy housekeeping, and a copious amount of rum squirreled away in nooks and niches all over the ship. Aside from these few abstract allegations, he completely disagreed about our location. The Seychelles, he told us, are mostly low, raised coral atolls and granitic islands, we can all see that this island owes its existence to some ancient volcanic eruption. Weeding believes the storm drove us southeastward toward the Marscarine Islands, leaving us several hundred miles east of our destination. His calculations, if they should prove accurate, offer little comfort. Perhaps it is my chronic cynicism that encumbers me with a flood of foreboding and dread over our predicament. Though I expect our team's benefactors at William Whitley College to mount some kind of recovery effort once our absence is observed, such a mission might take weeks or even months to organize. Among both members of the expedition and members of the crew, I seem to be the only one pessimistic enough to imagine a worst-case scenario. While my negativity may represent one extreme, weeding personifies the antithesis. The professor, despite all the prospective consequences of our dilemma, considers this an unparalleled opportunity for discovery. He envisions himself and his team as potentially the first scientific visitors to the island and has developed a strategy to identify and classify the endemic flora and fauna in hopes of uncovering some new species. It is places like this, Weeding said during our survey of the beachhead this morning, that the most exciting finds are made. An isolated environment allows for natural exclusivity and evolutionary aberration. He referenced the many creatures known only to exist in the Malgasy Republic, as well as the extinct Raphis cuculatus of Mauritius. On this island, we may find something that has never been seen by man before. Tracing the edges of a lagoon, we located a small, freshwater stream within an hour's walk of the boat. Disregarding the captain's counsel, we followed the tributary beneath the tropical, moist, broadleaf forest along its meandering course. While Weeding and his companions dutifully collected samples of the local insect population for further study, I mashed more than a few blood-sucking sandflies and other vexing bugs without a trace of remorse. Despite initial protestations, Weeding grudgingly complied when I eventually demanded we wrap up the day's expedition. By that time, the stream had led us up into a steep-sided ravine thick with lush vegetation. 
Trees of every shape and size and hue surrounded us, many stippled with colorful blossoms and other dangling sprays of white bell flowers with fine lacy petals. The professor rattled off a list of indigenous timber, including boys de nat, colophane, ebony, and tatamaca. Retracing our steps, I became acutely aware of an unseen presence. Having had time to reflect on the situation, I realize now that the forest possesses a hush and stillness that is both unnatural and unsettling. While the omnipresent insects continued to plague us during our return, no other living things made themselves evident. One might expect to see a variety of birds, geckos, and even small rodents on an island of this size and age. The absence of these creatures provokes a certain sense of anxiety and uneasiness in me. Weeding never spoke of it, but I suspected he feels it too. By the time we reached the beach, the sun had begun its listless descent, slipping out of view behind the mammoth summit of the long dormant volcano. A deep shadow spread across the forest, its primordial darkness settling on us heavily, as if it meant to snuff out our lives with the same indifferent aggravation I had exhibited towards the marauding sandflies. A raging bonfire on the beach welcomed us back to the aurora. Day 3. The First Mate Disappears It is early morning. The dawn is still an hour away. Weeding and his colleagues, exhausted from their hike, remain in their staterooms aboard the beached aurora, their bellies full of fresh fish. The captain did not see fit to allow me the consolation of a full night's sleep. He summoned me an hour ago to tell me that the first mate vanished during the course of the night. He claims that the man feels singly responsible for our troubles. The other crewman apparently shunned him yesterday, driving him off with unremitting verbal affronts. Though the first mate's silence at dinner substantiated a degree of despondency, I find the captain's contention that he simply wandered off less than convincing. As a detached observer and a competent judge of character, I have no difficulty in suggesting the possible involvement of the other crewmates in his disappearance. The blatant rage they displayed yesterday upon learning of his negligence provided me ample incentive to recommend at least a cursory inquiry. The captain, however, does not agree with me and refuses to even explore the prospect. He reports that the first mate's last words to him last night were, Open your eyes. The cryptic message makes no more sense to me than it did to him. Today, I will join the captain in a search of the adjacent lowland forest while weeding leads the crewmen to the creek so that the freshwater tanks aboard Aurora can be filled to capacity. The professor will probably insist upon further study of the interior, though the captain again cautioned him against it. I echoed the captain's admonition last night, advising each member of the team separately that the island may conceal as many risks as it does rarities. Weeding will not listen. Men driven by unconstrained curiosity habitually fail to notice looming threats as they clamor to accumulate knowledge. Even with the encroaching light of dawn and the fire beside me, the skies overhead are swarming with stars. I have never seen so many lights in the heavens, so many beacons of distant galaxies. Staring up into the endless cosmos, I grapple with its breadth. All units of measure seem obsolete. All understanding of distance and duration and scope become hopelessly inadequate. Like the deep shadow that threatened to suffocate us yesterday, the twilight anchors a singular burden in its vastness. 
an undeniable apathy that unknowingly mocks the greatest civilizations and ravages any cognizant being attentive enough to recognize it. It is not as though I have not seen death. I was eighteen, a willful and intractable boy with elaborate aspirations, when I covered the Battle of Dien Bien Phu in northwestern Vietnam when the Viet Minh captured the French fortress. A few years later, I happened to be on assignment when anti-European riots swept through Leopoldville in the Belgian Congo. I have seen enough of the gruesomeness and grimness of death in my twenty-five years to dislodge all of those lingering delusions preachers utilize to frame the Sunday morning sermons of my childhood. I cannot speak for the survival of the soul once the body has expired, but I can speak of the body itself. I can attest to the speed with which the semblance of life evaporates, the abrupt alteration in the skin's tone and texture, the prompt and unpleasant hollowness that supplants vitality. Still, when the captain signaled that he had found his first mate, nothing I had witnessed could have prepared me for what I was about to see. His remains waited for us beneath a coconut palm on the edge of the beach, not far from the aurora. We buried him before the others could return, worried that seeing his mutilated corpse might lead to panic, violence, or madness. Considering the scale and severity of his injuries, neither of us bothered to ponder the precise circumstances that culminated in his death. Hordes of voracious insects had already claimed ownership of his inert flesh, and had to be discouraged against carrying off any more meaty morsels as we dug his grave. More unsettling than the scavenging bugs, though, was the man's white-knuckled grasp on his own knife, and the gaping and apparently self-inflicted wound beneath his chin. The gash suggested that he had not merely tried to cut his own throat. He tried to commit suicide by decapitating himself. We agreed not to speak of the matter with the others. Tomorrow I will follow Weeding into the interior again. He is anxious to show me something he found in the jungle. His colleagues did not reflect his excitement regarding the day's find. In fact, they seemed sluggish and sullen this evening. Perhaps her inquisitiveness had waned. Unaccustomed to long hikes and tropical weather, they will not be joining us tomorrow. At the mention of another expedition, they swiftly volunteered to stay behind and help the captain and crew restock our supply of fish. Day 4. An Ancient Shrine It rises from the jungle floor unobtrusively, its archaic design showing no sign of deterioration through smothering vines have utterly encased it. No more than a simple pile of brick, it consists of a threefold base, a dome, and a pointed top. Architecturally, it resembles the Dagobah temples of Ceylon. Weeding is inspecting the inner chamber while I stand guard at the doorway to the temple. Occasionally he blurts out a fact he deems interesting, and I make a note of it in the margin of my journal without investing much in the investigation. My interest in the archaeological spectacle might be stimulated if I could distance myself from the gravity of our situation. Discovering the remnants of an ancient religious complex seems inconsequential unless the news can be conveyed to the rest of the world. Right now the world is distant and inaccessible. To it we are as imperceptible as the bones of the builders of this forgotten monument. Weeding is waiting outside, having instructed me to take a series of photographs of the inner walls of the temple for the sake of documentation. 
Intricate murals depict various religious motifs, some of which reverberate with Hindu and Judaic influences. Others appear far more pagan and prehistoric. The professor specified some of the more obscure representations he identified, including several names which held little or no meaning for me, such as Beelzebub, Chepre, Nyarlathotep, and Siggogolfot. There is some form of hieroglyph stretched across the stone that resembles no script I have ever seen. Weeding claims that scholars from William Whitley have made breakthroughs in translating similar writings from other sources. He supposedly recognizes a few of the more prevalent symbols and connects them with cults that once flourished in Egypt, Aksum, and India. What he has failed to notice here I find simultaneously encouraging and disturbing. My first discovery came before I even set foot inside the shrine. Discarded cigarette butts lay scattered amidst the brown leaves on the ground just outside the doorway. While the crew of the Aurora smokes constantly, I have not seen the professor or any one of his colleagues light up since we set out on this voyage. There are additional signs of recent visitation hidden in the shadows of the temple. So far I have found an emptied bottle of cognac, modern candlesticks, alkaline batteries, and a cache of 20th century literature including occult pamphlets and issues of an exploitative magazine called Wicked Worship, the most recent edition of which dates to February 1960. At this moment, I am standing in front of an altar that has not been denied fresh blood. I cannot estimate its last use, but I doubt more than a month has elapsed since the screams of a sacrifice dissolved in the dark surrounding forest. I pride myself on being attentive and alert. It takes a sharp eye to discern captivating images through the lens of a camera, picking out details that can be captured and confined and reproduced in the glossy pages of commercial periodicals. Men like Weeding have an entirely different set of parameters when it comes to perceiving the world around them. They assemble fragments, arrange pertinent data to arrive at a conclusion. They neglect those elements which do not play into their assessment. That is why, I believe, Weeding did not notice any of these things. That is why, also, he did not notice the bugs. Admittedly, I did not detect them initially, even when I stood with the tip of my nose no more than a foot away from the wall. Now I see them clearly, or, rather, I see how their immeasurable ranks quiver ever so slightly. I see how the glyphs on the walls ripple with life every few seconds, how the walls themselves shiver and wobble. They appear to be all-pervading, covering every surface inside the temple. The flash from my camera agitates them. Each picture I snap momentarily dislodges them from their methodically formed mosaic forces them to retrace the delicate lines of their mural, reform the thousands of symbols that comprise their hieroglyphic composition. They have sent sentries to encourage me to depart. I feel the pinprick bites on my ankles, feel their slow, steady advances up my legs. It is time to go. I did not bother to explain my experience inside the temple to Weeding. When I found him outside, the jungle insects had launched an attack. We both felt retreat was an immediate necessity, though I do not believe he assigned any preternatural aspect to the incident. Short of dismissing it as a hallucination, I am uncertain what to make of it at all. Crediting a swarm of minuscule bugs with the creation and continual preservation of the temple's murals and hieroglyphs seems tantamount to admitting to madness. Yet I know what I saw in that chamber, and I have never doubted my senses.
And there is more. In her flight from that clearing in the jungle, I turned once and looked over my shoulder. There, where the temple should have been, I saw nothing but an indistinct haze, a cloud of frantic insects angrily buzzing at their uninvited guests. A few moments ago, Weeding made an odd comment as he shambled off to bed. He said, Open your eyes. Day 5. Screams in the night. I must keep my entries brief. We are now only four. The captain, the remaining crewman, and one of Weeding's associates vanished overnight. I pray it was not their screams that the forest failed to suppress some time past midnight. I had not noticed before this morning that the island changes its facets endlessly. The rock I placed to mark the first mate's burial plot, I cannot find. The tree beneath which we recovered his corpse is no longer there. Even the aurora has swung about on the beach. Tides might account for shifting sands. Anyone might have picked up the grave marker. I might be mistaken about the location of the coconut palm. I might be mistaken about a great many things. But I am not. Weeding has seen something, too. He will not speak of it, but it clearly has affected him. He stands in the surf, unwilling to set foot on shore. I do not know what he will do when fatigue finally claims him. I do not know if I can convince him to come back to the aurora. Weeding is floating on his back in the Indian Ocean beneath the stars. I am sitting at the water's edge, calling out to him every few minutes to make sure he hasn't drifted off. Just before the last light of day faded from the sky, he said something that seemed worth recording. At Heliopolis, they worshipped the dung beetle, he said. They believed it sprang from the earth without any generative process, that it created itself. I have a friend in the religious studies department back in Tahlequah. I tell him about the biology of bugs. He tells me why so many people have worshipped them throughout history. They have been cults in every corner of the globe scattered throughout centuries. They survive to this day. He trailed off at the end, drowning in his own musings. I did not question him further. I understand. The others are gone. Something lured them into the forest, into that oppressive darkness that is crawling with some imperceptible manifestation of primordial malevolence. I feel its pull, too, but I can resist it. I have at least caught a glimpse of it, enough to recognize its mercilessness enough to see through any illusion it might employ to entice me. Weeding is no longer returning my calls. Day 6. Alone. With company. As I walked along the shoreline this morning, I saw their silhouettes beneath the trees in the shade of the jungle. The first mate, the captain, the crew, and the team members from William Whitley beckoned me, waving their arms hysterically, determined to draw my attention from a distance, they looked perfectly normal right down to the tone of their flesh and the fit of their clothing. To my astonishment, they called out when they realized they could not dupe me with their disciplined ruse. Their voices carried a tinny inflection that betrayed the chirp and buzz of the drones that perpetrated the counterfeit vocalizations. Of course, they were not real. They were effigies orchestrated by those loathsome insects, impatient to add me to their list of victims. Don't go to them, Weeding said, startling me. They'll take you. They'll become you. They'll use your identity to do their bidding on earth. Open your eyes. His body floated on the surf, face down. Something had taken a chunk out of his hip, and I backed away from the cloudy crimson aura that tainted the water around him. He was dead. Of that, I am certain. 
Still, I heard his voice in my head, a faint whisper like a fading radio transmission. Their influence is already too strong. Don't become another faceless entity in their collective. Don't become subordinate to their crawling chaos. Nightfall threatens to dissolve the world around me, reduce it to nothing more than a shadow and fear and the reassurance of inevitable death. I scribble these last few words, expecting them to fall into obscurity, along with my existence, but hoping that somehow they will survive me. To anyone who finds this journal, consider it a testament to the lingering darkness that maintains foothold in the remote corners of the earth. We can see more than we imagine. Open your eyes. Day 7. Rescue Before dawn, I saw lights on one horizon, a black, blurry cloud on the opposite one. I see it now, a boat flying an American flag. I am on a rock in the middle of the ocean. Where is the island? January 1963. I am the only known survivor of the Aurora. My rescuers indicated that there were no islands within 50 miles of the small coral atoll where they found me. During a prolonged hospital stay, I was assured, continually, that the events recorded in this journal had been part of some elaborate phantasm, a delirium, unconsciously contrived to keep my mind occupied while my body deteriorated. It is the lingering, unsolicited lucidity that makes me unwilling to dismiss everything I described in my journal. To this day... I see things that should not be there. In staggered glimpses, I perceive that the things that surround us and the people with whom we interact are not necessarily what science tells us they are supposed to be. Sometimes they are real. Sometimes they are something else pretending to be real. I have done a fair amount of research in the last year, and I have found references to the deities I recorded on day four amidst an array of obscure but accessible esoteric literature. Though my camera was not recovered, I was able to reproduce some of the symbols I saw in the temple. I sent those to William Whitley College for examination more than six months ago, but to date, I have not received a response. In fact, many of my inquiries have gone unanswered regarding the existence of bug-worshipping cultists. I have compiled as much research on the matter as I am able to stomach, and I have decided to shelve my investigation before it becomes an obsession. I hope that I can put all of this behind me, someday, soon, convince myself that the doctors are right that it was all just an awful nightmare. But if that is the case, I have to ask myself, why is it that each word I write on this page seems to flutter for an instant before settling into place? David Arthur Brown aged 71, was last seen at the port of Majunga in Madagascar. There, authorities report he charted a small yacht for sightseeing and game fishing. A month after the vessel sailed from the harbor, it was found adrift some 100 miles north of Mauritius. No trace of Brown or the crew was ever found. That was Lee Clark Zumps, An Unsolicited Lucidity, as read by Stephen Kilpatrick. 
For many of you, that voice and name may sound pretty familiar. That's because Stephen Kilpatrick was the former occupant of this very seat where I now sit. Uh, figuratively, of course. Former longtime host of Tales to Terrify, Stephen now works supporting assistive technologies for special education students, and is currently working towards a role in information assurance. It's great to hear from you again, Stephen. Well, children of the night, the hour is late and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters on Patreon and PayPal. Incredible fans like Kathy Robinson and Amanda Gottfried, whose generous support helps keep the lights on and flickering ominously. Not a supporter already? Head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify, where you'll find all kinds of perks like ad-free and extended episodes, bonus content, and one-of-a-kind collectibles and merch packs. Every dollar goes back into this show to make it as horrific as possible, and we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show that doesn't cost a cent? Head over to Stitcher, Podchaser, or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. You'll not only put an unnaturally wide smile on our faces, but help new listeners discover our terrifying tales, too. Now you can share your love of the show out in the world with some Tales to Terrify merch. TalesToTerrify.com slash merch will take you to our Tee Public store, where we've got a great collection of creepy custom and curated designs that's always growing, so check back often. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Meredith Borgenstern, Andrew Gibson, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, no-derivatives license. Join us again next week as we descend into the Stygian Abyss with more Tales to Terrify. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com.
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 